Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is the Jordan B. Peterson Podcast with 78% fewer tears. Just kidding. This is a very grumbly on with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher, who obviously has a very bad cold. And I'm Naima Raza. Wow, Kara, your voice sounds terrible. What did you wonder? It was doing 100 TV hits about Elon, or it's it's the young kids and the germs? Oh, both. I think both of them. I think it's really, when you have small children, you literally, I get everything. And so... I get all the different things. I'm so looking forward to Lice next. Oh, excellent. I had a lot better voice for our our interview uh, we did this week. Yes, it was with our guest, Matt Levine, who's the Bloomberg Opinion columnist behind Money Stuff, which I think is probably the best and most fun to read newsletter on all things biz. Yeah, he writes for both uh, the experts, the people on Wall Street, and also regular people completely understand what he's writing. Some of the credit uh, default swaps, maybe you're not that interested in, but... I love credit default swaps. Oh, do you? Well, anyway... Well, you can get that at the Matt Levine column. Before we get to the interview with Matt Levine, which is about all things Elon, um, let's talk about our newsmakers. Yep. This week, they're Paul Pelosi and obviously Elon. Yeah. And let's start with Paul Pelosi. The husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is still recovering from surgery after a skull fracture and other serious injuries he sustained during a violent attack in a San Francisco home on Friday. Um, The attacker arrived shouting, where's Nancy, which echoed the January 6th mob, of course. Yes. The suspect is being charged with attempted homicide, assault, burglary, and other felonies. But this was just horrific news to see. I mean, Carol, what were your first thoughts when you heard? Oh, a political assassination. They were trying to get her. I mean, she's she talks about it a little, you know, now and again, like, and she tends to, just the way you saw her in those videos at the at the Capitol, she's like, all right, next, because she's kind of a mom kind of personality. Yeah, she's on high alert, but she's also used to being on high alert. Yeah, absolutely. And Speaker Pelosi has been particularly demonized by the GOP. I mean, even before January 6th, her house had been vandalized, a pig's head had been left outside of it. Right. But this violence is also a broader issue for both parties. Uh, you know, we've seen this, the 2020 kidnapping attempt of Gretchen Whitmer, who's a Democrat, but also for Republicans. Uh, New York gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin, who's a congressman, was giving a campaign speech on stage when a man climbed on the stage with a knife. Yep. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh had a man with a knife and gun arrested near his home. And as you were saying, it's just becoming more and more common. Yep. Capitol Police data suggests a surge in violence threats since the 2016 election. And in the five years since, the number of recorded threats of violence is up to 
10,000 in 2021. So what do you think is responsible for that? Some of this language, this language, you know, even after he was attacked, there was the governor of Virginia made an incredibly inappropriate comment. Someone who is considered centrist, I guess, um, about how they're going to send her back to take care of him. And, and uh, you know, Carrie Lake, of course, said something awful. Yeah, when asked, Carrie Lake tied the attack to elected officials in California. And, and some extreme elements of the GOP are trying to paint this as a story about crime in San Francisco mm-hmm. and not as a story about violent political polarization writ large, which which seems disingenuous here, really. I think most of the leaders said the right thing on in the GOP. But this, this language about, around her, around Hillary Clinton... Uh, and, and around everybody in politics is going to attract uh, someone who's going to make a move, just like Pizzagate happened, just like with uh, Steve Scalise. Um, who's now the second most powerful Republican in the House. He's the whip. Yeah. He got shot at a congressional baseball game. Someone's going to jump off 2017. Yeah. Someone's going to jump off this sort of anger pit that's been create mosh pit that's been created online and do something. And that's it's just inevitable. Also, there are so many disincentives to run for office, I think, already, knowing people who have chosen that path and and some have been successful there. If you're a young, educated, ambitious person, you know, running for government or being in government is getting less and less attractive. And these attacks are definitely adding to that layer. I mean, it's a huge price. People are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to protect themselves. I think Warnock paid almost a million dollars since he was elected. Yeah, they're all, it's it's going to get worse. That's all. And, and that leads us to Elon. It does lead us to Elon, especially because he just replied to a Hillary Clinton tweet about Republican conspiracies leading to violence. And, yeah. and he, in response, shared a conspiracy theory mm-hmm. about the attack on Paul, saying there is a tiny possibility there may be more to the story than meets the eye, which is just wild and, and we don't need to dignify that. And, right. and we have a whole interview about Elon coming up in a second with Matt Levine, so I don't want to dwell on it. But right. free speech was part of what motivated Elon to buy Twitter. He's also now saying the platform will have a content moderation panel. But is this kind of misinformation, this kind of violent rhetoric um, just going to get worse in a world where Elon runs Twitter? It has been. Like, everyone's testing the system, right? Everybody who you'd imagine, they've come on and they say, now can I say the N-word? And then they say it. Now can I do this? Now can I do that? Now can I put Hitler memes up? They've done it. This is this is just what they're doing because this is what they think it is. Actually, you know, there's it's one thing when you have the Babylon Bee making a tasteless joke, a trans joke, and it's tasteless. It was tasteless, but that's one thing. And there's some reason to argue that they it's a comedy site. They should have left that up. But this stuff is not the same thing. And I don't know what he's going to do to figure out. He can't decide all of them himself. And he's going to be cutting these safety staffs. So it could turn into a really bad situation. Or he's, you know, a lot of the noise coming from his... I don't know what they are. His hangers-on um, is about um, using AI to mitigate this and bots and this and that. But you can't stop people from being like this guy who attacked Nancy Pelosi. And so if you let them, let the stuff, it just, and also it's not a good business. Yoel Roth, who's the, I guess, the Twitter uh, head of safety. Great guy. Um, yeah, he was saying that it's a small group of, because there have been these reports. I think one report said there have been, you know, uh, five times more racial slurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, LeBron James responded to that saying, you know, I don't know. He basically said, I don't know Elon, but if Elon is doing this, he should get on top of it. But um, you know, Roth's saying is that it was just a n- small number of accounts, just 300 accounts who yeah. put out those 50,000 tweets. So in that sense, it seems like a more controllable it's always the case. situation, right? Because it's a small number of people. One hopes. One or hopes. a small number of bots. 
I would like him to come up with innovation to, to stop this. It could be bots. It could be whatever. But you can't have the idea that it's okay to talk like this. And that's, and that's from a business point of view. Let's, I mean, from a society point of view, it's disastrous. But from a business point of view, if he wants to make money at this thing and make a better product, people have to like being on there. Or guess what? They'll waltz over to TikTok and say, see you later. Do you think people will? I mean, obviously, Shonda Rhimes has decided she's going to leave. She's not on it that much, yeah. Brian Koppelman, I think, executive producer of Billions. So do you think people are going to leave? I don't know. For the first time, I've thought about leaving. And it's only because I got like an, an inundation of right-wing craziness. Oh. And I don't want to listen to them. It's like being at a party and having people come scream at you. I like Twitter. I love Twitter. I'm an active Twitter. I know. I was going to ask you if you were thinking about leaving Twitter. That's pretty. I was. I was like, I don't need this. I don't need this. I got other things to do, as including getting more colds and everything mm-hmm. else. But um, I don't need it. Like some of it was like really uh, disheartening. And I don't need it. I hope not to. I like it. I like doing Twitter spaces. I'm an active user. I think it's in when it's wonderful, it's a wonderful product. You know, it's a good marketing product. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how much it helps me. I don't know. I have barely tweeted before this year. I mean, barely. Um, obviously, Elon started his first day with layoffs. Uh, you know, so he got control of the company on Thursday night. By Friday, yeah. he had fired uh, former CEO Parag Agarwal, um, chief legal policy officer Vijaya Gade, as well as the CFO, the general counsel. And they were all fired for cause. No, he claims they were fired for cause. We'll see. I think there's going to be a lawsuit. Yeah, we'll see. That's, that's obviously a way to try to avoid paying Yes. Um, severance fees, trying to not give them unvested equity, one would presume. Right. But yeah, it would be hard to justify that because there's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake for these folks. Sure, they're going to sue him. So uh, good luck. Who do you think is the executive that's the biggest loss? Is it Vijaya? Uh, no, they would never have gotten along. She's a different, you know, she's done more for protecting people across the world than anybody else. But this Trump thing, even though it was Jack Dorsey's decision, whether Jack Dorsey takes ownership of it, he was the CEO at the time and made the final decision. You should see the stuff online about her. You know, she was responsible for the decision, although Jack Dorsey made it, endorsed and made the decision. They're not going to go after one of their bros, and so they go after her. Um, He can't run away from this decision himself. I'm sorry. He was the CEO. He let it happen. Uh, nobody, uh, nobody broke his arm to do so. I mean, honestly, uh, but whatever, that's who they're going to blame. But I think she'll take them to court and she'll have her money. Okay. Let's take a quick break. And when we're back, we'll have the interview with Matt Levine. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. People say perfect is the enemy of good, but simple is everyone's best friend. Because when something is simple and easy, it tends to work out for the best. And NetSuite wants to provide products and services tailor-made for your business. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash on, netsuite.com slash on, netsuite.com slash on. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from NerdWallet. 
You don't have to be a genius to start making better financial decisions today. It's not that sexy, but piling up lots of little monetary victories today can yield some pretty significant rewards down the line. The tricky part is knowing where to start. NerdWallet can help. Their financial experts have helped countless people find new ways to maximize every dollar they earn. Now the team is helping folks get more from every dollar they spend. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credits side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering up to 10 times the points on every dollar you charge. Their expert team of nerds did the work reviewing top credit cards so you can trust that you have the smartest one for future you. If I had better rewards right now, I would probably travel to Hawaii and be sitting on a beach and not talking into this microphone right now. I would be enjoying a Mai Tai, possibly swimming, doubtful I would be surfing, but I would spend them all there. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Okay, Kara, so our guest today is Matt Levine, the Bloomberg columnist. Why do you want to talk to him of all people about Elon? Well, he's my favorite columnist on it, except myself. No, I I think he's, he always gives me insights. There's a couple, Bill Cohen and him, are ones that I really rely on for new ideas. I don't, I'm not a big Wall Street person. I've covered Wall Street, but I'm certainly not an expert. But Matt, he's a former lawyer and former finance guy, so he really does know what he's talking about. And he's very funny. Um, And he's writing about interesting stuff like the anti-ESG group. So. Mm -hmm. Just really good, um, not necessarily reporting on the deal, but analysis of the deal. Yeah. His reporting on this kind of anti-woke crowd ethos of a certain moneyed set in Silicon Valley has been particularly interesting. And yeah. and that, uh, you know, is also part of the context of Elon's acquisition of Twitter, obviously, from the text that we've seen. A hundred percent. He has been doing so much coverage of this, Kara, that he has ended up having to write about Elon and Twitter on days that he was supposed to have taken off at least 16 times since April. Ah, well, too bad. That's the life. He's That's the life he's chosen. <laughs> what even is a holiday in the news? No, I don't think there's any holiday in the news anymore. But he's the best, and that's why I wanted to talk to him. All right, here's the conversation between you and Matt Levine, which thankfully you had a better voice for. All right, Matt, this deal is finally done after you had got so much great content uh, out of this. Um, Elon tweeted, let the good times roll. He also tweeted, the bird is freed. That is until he announced he's going to have to moderate for advertisers by creating a moderation council. I would just like your top line thoughts on this after all these months of writing about it and thinking about it. Uh, I mean, you know, from my perspective, the top line thought is probably that the system worked like Elon Musk signed a deal to buy Twitter. He changed his mind. And uh, he just sort of thought he could change his mind. And people are like, no, 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 you signed a deal. It's binding. And uh, it turned out to be binding. So that's that's my top line thoughts. I don't yet have thoughts on what the Elon Twitter is going to look like. It'll probably be weird, but I think it'll be less weird than people think. I think it'll be mm-hmm. pretty much like Twitter. So let's talk about the deal so far, because on several occasions he tried to back out. Um, you think it would not have closed if not for this chief judge of Delaware's Chancery Court who wouldn't put up with his delays and enforce the October 28th deadline? Yeah. I mean, I think that the Delaware courts are pretty serious about corporate law. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I think that the Delaware courts kind of conceive themselves as like the representatives of Delaware's incredibly strong interest in having companies incorporated there and having their merger agreements be predictable. Mm-hmm. So people get out of merger agreements, but like, you know, you have to find the part of the document that says you can get out of the merger agreement. And Elon Musk didn't even really try. Like he was not 
putting in a real good effort to sort of make a legal case. And his lawyers, you know, tried to clean up after him, but it didn't really work. Did you at any point think he could get out of it? I know you said, well, it could happen, I guess. You know, I worried. I worried. I mean, I think that uh, there are not a ton of precedents either way for this particular thing, for like one guy signing an agreement to buy a company. I thought the agreement was pretty clear. I thought he didn't have any real legal outs, but he was going to throw everything he had against it. And uh, I didn't think the odds were zero, but um, turns out that it was enforceable and he ended up settling for 100% of the purchase price he agreed to, which is a Mm -hmm. pretty comprehensive loss. All right. I want to talk about that in a second. But one of the things that he did right away, he's made a number of moves, including this alleged content moderation board. He has not asked me to be on it yet, though I have a viewpoint. Um, Maybe he'll ask me. He didn't ask you? I haven't heard yet. Yeah. But I'm I'm crossing my finger. Okay. Waiting by the phone. Um, So he's, uh, he's dubbed himself Chief Twit, which is fine, whatever. He can call himself whatever he wants. He's going to pay that much money. Um, and he fired four executives, Parag Agarwal, the CEO, Vijay Gade, the head of legal policy, trust and safety, who was part of the decision to boot Trump off Twitter, but also a big legal hero in efforts to protect users of the platform from governments, um, as well as CFO Neil Siegel, general counsel Sean Edge. Do you look at this or think this is a problematic thing or is that typical in these kind of uh, corporate takeovers? I think that He's going to lay people off, and that's always been his plan. I think in terms of firing like the four top executives that he clashed with, that's totally not a surprise. Like He wants to run Twitter his way and mm-hmm. not the way they were running it, and that's why he's buying it. And I don't think any of them are surprised. And you know, I think he will be firing a lot of rank-and-file employees at some point, but I don't know how he could choose yet who they are. Yeah, but they really carried the water for shareholders. These executives managed to get him, along with the board, to stick to the price. Um, Someone wrote, Powering had secured the bag for his shareholders and got fired. They should build a statue to him in Shareholder Value Hall of Fame. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, like, it's not a pleasant, you know, fight to get to get Elon to actually close the deal, right? I mean, I've been critical of Twitter's board and management for uh, sort of finding themselves in this position. Like, Mm -hmm. Elon has a vision for Twitter. It's not totally clear what it is, but... He thinks it's valuable and he thinks it's important. And he like just he's just like a Twitter user. Like he really mm-hmm. likes Twitter. He does. And you never get that sense from Twitter's board or management. No. You never get the sense that they're like deeply committed to the product, that they really believe in its social importance in the way that Elon says he does. Um, arguably the share price was languishing because the the company was a little bit out of ideas. And that's why Elon Musk ended up buying it, right? So It kind of reminds me of the people, I think it was Terry Semmel who bought the Alibaba stake for Yahoo, which Yahoo kept running off the rails, but it didn't matter because they had that massive stake that made them very valuable. Um, and in this case, they had Elon to pay for it. And you're, you're quite correct in that they ran out of ideas. This has been a terrible company for most of its history, um, Twitter has, in terms of economics. You know, its importance as a product and as like a sort of, you know, as, as Elon would say, like town square for democracy, is so much greater than its economic importance. Every politician wants to be on Twitter all the time. Why isn't it, you know, making more money? And, you know, the latest iteration of that is Elon Musk is going to try to make it make more money. Maybe. Well, the economics of this deal always have seemed out of sync to me. Also, Elon is throwing out $54.20. What is the value of Twitter? Yeah, I don't have a strong view on that. When he announced that price, that was like a normal to generous price. The stock price. Right, if you looked at sort of where Twitter was trading and and the market, but that was before, you know, a big downturn in the market generally. Um, It's not a great time in the market for social media stocks. And Elon Musk kind of 
bought this social media stop at the peak. Right. He bought it at the peak and now he owns it at, when there's a lot of headwinds. Meta just reported problematic earning and it's quite good at making money over the years. The same thing with Alphabet, same thing with all the companies in the tech sector, but Twitter has not been. What, how does that, does it really matter if it's a private company and it's his? Uh, you know, it doesn't matter to shareholders, right? I mean, the shareholders have been cashed out. Uh, it matters a little bit in the sense that Twitter has a really big debt burden now. Like it's borrowing mm -hmm. about 12 or $13 billion to pay for this purchase. And so it's going to have something like one to one and a half billion dollars a year of interest expense, which is, would be difficult, you know, in, in better times for it to cover that interest expense. So, you know, if it, continues to perform poorly financially, there's some chance of like Musk's banks foreclosing on Twitter, which I wouldn't want to do if I were them, but like, you know, it's like a theoretical possibility. And, you know, Musk has co-investors uh, and he will eventually probably want to take this company public again. I mean, that's normally what happens with LBOs. So you'd expect him to want to sell it again and, and to want to spruce up the economics in order to do that. And, and he has to show that. An LBO is a leveraged buyout for people to know. Yep. From your piece, uh, you wrote this, I love this line, but Musk in, his, uh, in this story has some magic power. He can create tens of billions of dollars of market value by waving a magic wand in a way that no ordinary mortal can replicate or even understand. I, uh, I guess I almost believe that. <laughs> Tell me the part you believe and you don't believe. I don't know. I mean, if you look at like the history of Tesla, I think most people kind of think of Tesla as a pretty good business now in terms of like it makes cars and sells them right. for a lot of money and does volume and builds mm -hmm. factories and stuff. But for a long time, like the stock price was way ahead of the business, right? And it would not right. make money year after year. And, you know, the, the typical reason that people give for that is that there's an army of Elon Musk fans who will you know, buy the stock and push up the price of the stock. And if you believe some form of that, then like, you know, can he add value to Twitter? Maybe. Now, separately, can he add cash flows to Twitter? And the reason people buy Tesla is not just that they like his jokes online. They also like think he is some sort of business genius. And so mm -hmm. if he can do some business genius to, to Twitter, then perhaps that leads to a, you know, 80 or $100 billion valuation instead of the, you know, $40 billion he bought it at or the $10 billion it might be worth otherwise. Right. Uh, do you think he's a business genius, Matt? Uh, I think he's obviously very smart and talented and has, you know, gotten a lot of things right. And, and you, like, he's, like, he runs all these very disparate, very, you know, like, aggressively complicated companies tackling difficult problems and making, you know, impressive progress on them. Like you can't like, you can't look at SpaceX and be like, this guy's a dope, you know? Like, right, no, like 100%. He's clearly good at, at doing stuff. Great at products, great at products. You know, and Twitter is a, is a challenged product that he thinks is important, can put his mind to and perhaps make it better. I don't know how. And when you look at like the stuff he said publicly about how he wants to do it, you're like, I don't know, that doesn't sound like it's gonna triple the value of the company. But, you know, he's created a lot of shareholder value before, so. Might he do it again? Maybe. Does this make it a meme stock at some point? That's what you're suggesting, that they'll buy it no matter what and put up the value. Right. I mean, it's not a meme stock in the sense that it's not a public company. But Right. But if it did. You could imagine like Elon Musk buying Twitter today mm -hmm. or yesterday and, you know, waiting like two weeks and taking it public again. And you've basically just taken it away from Twitter shoulders. And now you sell it back to like Elon Musk fans. And maybe you can sell it at a higher price. Obviously, he's not going to do that. Two weeks. No, that's, that's an exaggerated joke. Yeah. Well, why not? Like, I think it's going to be, you know, three, four five years, like a sort of more normal time frame where he can actually do stuff. And when he goes back to the public market, he can say, look at all that I've done to change Twitter and make it better. 
But to some extent, like having it go from a company that is a regular public social media company to being an Elon Musk company, mm -hmm. that possibly adds value there. And that's that's like people who are Elon Musk fans would want to buy the stock. Yeah, I want the T-shirt. I want the T-shirt and the share of stock in Elon Musk because he's done it before. Correct. That's the premise behind it is that he's done it before. Yeah. He can do it again. Yeah, but also that he is a meme lord and he has <laughs> fans who might buy, you know, like he became a meme lord for Dogecoin, the cryptocurrency. And like that doesn't do anything. And nobody's expecting him to like make Dogecoin, you know, have cash flows. But like people bought Dogecoin because Elon Musk liked Dogecoin. By the way, know? it's up again. It's up again. So sure. there you have it. So how does uh, Elon fix the business? Let's talk about that. Who will be left at the company? Obviously, he's fired those executives. Um, the employee compensation program will vest on Tuesday. So he has a lot of incentive to fire people. Well, now, I guess. Uh, yeah. Like he fired senior executives who he like clearly right. didn't like, you know, right. and who he's been fighting with for months. Like that's not surprising. But I think he said that he wants to slim down the employee ranks pretty drastically. And I don't think he's alone in thinking that Twitter's overstaffed and has not done a lot of product innovation with all that staff. So mm -hmm. it is not at all impossible that like he can slim down the staff and continue to have a functioning Twitter and possibly even add some stuff that he wants to add. So when you're doing that, when people are coming in to try to redo a, a sort of, I called it the Mount Everest of turnarounds, you have to fire people and you've got to cut costs. That seems to be sort of one of the moves in the, in the quiver. But you really do have to come up with ideas. You have to keep the audience, keep advertisers, and then come up with new, fresh things to sell to them. It seems like most of the innovation and interest is somewhere else. Like on TikTok is what's eating everybody's lunch, not just Twitter, but Facebook and other places. I agree with that, but it, you know, it's it's sometimes hard for me to see because I'm you know a journalist and mm -hmm. like the center of gravity in the journalistic world is Twitter. Twitter, and right? It's clearly you know like it is not where the teens are making the memes, you know. No, but like it's where Elon Musk hangs out, right? It's mm -hmm. where Donald Trump wishes he could hang out, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that there is there continues to be this idea that it's culturally central, and the question is, can he? revive that and monetize that. And the stuff that he's said about that is like, well, we'll charge people for subscriptions. Like, okay. Like, does that, does that sort of destroy its cultural value? Because like mm -hmm. the value of Twitter is like, everyone can go there and make memes and sort of, uh, uh, exchange ideas. I don't right. know. I exchange ideas. I like that. Well, whatever. Exchange yeah. you know, abuse. Abuse right. on each other. But it's not. It's still never been the majority social media company. It's never been the biggest. It's important resonance with media people, politicians. Um, do you imagine what what could happen where they would leave from your perspective, or that it becomes because sometimes parties just stop being parties, right? Or clubs stop being clubs, or whatever. We've seen that happen dozens of times for in the internet space for sure. Yeah, the sort of immediate worries with Elon Musk takeover are, you know, if you sort of buy Twitter with the goal of free speech, and then you just sort of like fire the entire content moderation team, and then it's all just, you know, abuse and racism and misinformation, then probably a lot of people are like, I don't want this anymore. I'm going to mm -hmm. go do something more pleasant with my life, and you lose yeah. people. Um, and I think Musk's ideas for that are kind of like, you'll be able to like choose your filter so that you can have like the high racism Twitter or the low racism Twitter <laughs> somewhere in between. And like, I'll like, take the low I, maybe racism. that'll work, but like, it uh, might be kind of hard to implement. Um, yeah. but the other problem is just if you like fire, if you're firing everyone or if you're like sort of like demoralizing everyone, then right. like you lose not only the like, you know, 
people blocking Donald Trump, but also the people blocking like spam bots and crypto scammers. And then, you know, like part of why he wanted to buy Twitter is that his Twitter experience was like being constantly barraged by spam bots. And he wants to fix that, but he's also wants to fire everyone. So it's like, you know, he may end up making that problem worse. And then just more generally, you know, like people like, uh, there's been very little product innovation at Twitter. And like, when you talk about like TikTok, like the thing they're doing is more appealing to more people and particularly to younger people. And so like, does Twitter risk becoming like the place where old journalists go to chat with each other and how valuable <laughs> is that? No, not at all. So let's talk about subscriptions. Very hard to do. Very. They tried Twitter Blue, which was a shitty product. As I tried it. Didn't give me anything more. I find value in Prime. I find value in Netflix. I find value in Disney+. Plus. If you have any children, you have to watch Frozen 112 times a week. Um, talk to me about what would be valuable here. What could they, could they charge big? I mean, for me, Twitter is a marketing opportunity for the most part and a bit of an addiction around news. Yeah. I mean, if you have like 100 Twitter followers, Twitter is a mm-hmm. way to consume some information that you probably wouldn't pay a dollar a month for. But if you have a million Twitter followers, Twitter is part of your business, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, in, you're in some sort of business of promoting yourself and you need Twitter. And if you charge those people, you know, 10 bucks a month, like that would be a easily, you know, written off expense. That's the thing that people have suggested over the years. Um, one thing he wants to do is just build more product, like just make mm-hmm. more stuff that you can do to make a Twitter experience better. And like, presumably you could charge for some of that. Like, you know, you could charge people to have the low racism Twitter or mm-hmm. you could charge them to have the high racism Twitter. I don't know. I don't know which one is more valuable to more people, but like probably could, the high racism. Yeah, Twitter. right. Yeah. Um, so you can build more filters and more ways to customize your, your Twitter experience. And then like mm-hmm. you can pay a little bit for a more pleasant Twitter experience. And like right. Twitter is very valuable because there are a lot of casual users who can like see the memes that you tweet and like in some like low touch way be fans of yours. Sure. And those people shouldn't pay for Twitter because they're very casual users. But there are a lot of like very deeply addicted. Like if you charged Elon, you know, leaving aside that he bought the company, if like Twitter had charged Elon Musk a thousand dollars a month last year to, to use Twitter, he would have paid it, right? Like he's rich and he loves Twitter. Yeah. So yes. Something is there. But doesn't that take away from this town square idea of Elon's talking about if everyone gets to have their filtered Twitter or not? Does that take away if everyone's not in the same cesspool swimming around together? I mean, a little bit, but like, honestly, Twitter is never like it's it's a, you know, you choose your own feed, right? And mm-hmm. like <laughs> Twitter's product people have like been fighting against that for years where they are constantly trying to show you tweets that, that from people you don't follow because they want to you know, increase virality and, yeah, and Facebook s- serve more ads. Too. Right. They're trying to be more like Facebook. But um, the idea that everyone on Twitter should see the same thing has not really ever been a goal of the product. Uh, and when Musk says it's the town square, like he doesn't exactly mean that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, every tweet that he writes is published in a newspaper, you know, mm-hmm. is published in the Wall Street Journal and on Bloomberg, right? So right. like he, for him, it's a broadcast platform, which is not the same as the town square, but not a lot of people have a filter that avoids him. Yeah, um, no, he's doing it to get around reporters or whoever he wants to and just get his personality out there. Although also, um, by the way, like he interacts with people, like like people reply yeah. to him and he replies to them. Like he, he, yeah. he does use it as a two-way communication tool, which is maybe somewhat unusual for a, you know, celebrity with millions of followers. So will advertisers um, who make up the core of revenue stick around from your perspective? This Is this a critical business for them? Um, he tweeted addressing advertisers about making Twitter warm and welcoming, which I don't think of Twitter when I think warm and welcoming, but maybe that's me. 
Uh, like I've never fully understood Twitter advertising. Um, like uh, yeah, I mean, the yeah. ads I'd get are not great, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and right. Like even given like, as of last week, Twitter's trust and safety procedures, if you're serving ads on Twitter, you're kind of still next to some sketchy content. You yes, know, you really are. Worried about that. There's very good ads on Instagram. There's very good ads on TikTok. Everyone yeah. else seems to have decent ads or at least useful ads. Yeah. I mean, Twitter, uh, historically is just worse at that but they're also like you use twitter differently right you're not there to follow your friends and like share your baby pictures so they can serve you ads for disney plus yeah you're, you're there i've to never like... gotten a disney plus ads yes i've never <laughs> got i have a lot of children i've never gotten any children's ads and i put up some ideas I that right. i might have children I I, i'm not sure i have either uh yeah. but no but like twitter is like not about your life right it's about screaming about politics or making weird jokes yeah yeah they never separate the ick from the from the attractive. Um, so is, is content moderation the answer? He was He's saying he's a free speech absolutist, but he's already punted a little by saying he'll form a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints, no changes to policy until he convenes. That's his way of pushing the Trump decision down the road, presumably, I would think. Um, yeah. I don't know. That seems like that to me. I don't think he's really a free speech absolutist. I don't know oh, that neither he's do I. those neither words. Neither do I, Matt. But like, I think that he, you know, like... He wants somewhat more Republican content on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think that he wants all possible content on Twitter. I think there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of content moderation, and I think he's going to, you know, it's like pretty easy for him to declare victory and be like, oh, Trump is back on Twitter, free speech is free, you know. I think that, like, as of last week, in his mind, he was like the guy making the content decisions, right? Like, mm-hmm. But as of now, he's like, wait a minute, like, I can't spend my whole time deciding if some account with 200 followers like should get back on Twitter after they tweet something racist. And I think, I think he's realizing that. And like, he wants to have, you know, like any other company would have some sort of process for doing this so that he can say, it's the process. It's not me. I don't have to make every decision personally. Right. Because that would be a nightmare. Except he's Although he probably himself. would, because he is like this like insane micromanager. Like he might, he might get into that for a week or two. But I think eventually he wants some sort of process that he can he can punt to. What will rise to the, his attention of decision making? Do you think Trump, obviously, um, high profile Kanye West, things like that? Is that where he should stick to? Or people will think it because they think he's running everything. They think he's Willy Wonka, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that my sense is that. The content moderation stuff is like gets a lot of attention, but mm-hmm. what will probably take up more, more of his time is producty stuff, mm-hmm. stuff like you know, figuring out how to do ads better, figuring out other ways to monetize, figuring out like you know, block lists, like just making the experience better. Like uh, in terms of moderation decisions, I mean, I think the place where he's going to get where a lot of his focus is going to be is stuff where the pressures on him come directly from powerful government officials, right? Like, I think Mm -hmm. he will get calls from powerful Republicans saying we need, you know, to unban these Republicans who did bad stuff. I also think, you know, the the concern that a lot of people have has nothing to do with American politics. Concern that a lot of people have is that he's going to get calls from Chinese Communist Party officials saying you, as the CEO of Tesla, have tons of important economic ties to China, and we don't want Twitter to carry any pro-Tibet content or, like, anything about, like, you know, Uyghur genocide. What happens in that case? Because he does, he is exposed there in his economic interests. He's already been tweeting about Taiwan. Uh, yeah, obviously nobody he's knows, been, man. Like, he's, he's, like, called for China to invade Taiwan, you know? Like, he's... Special administrative zone, Matt. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, right. Like, he's expressed views that are, that are, like, you know, quite positive about China. And 
Everything else aside, like if you're the CEO of a company that has a lot of business in China, you want to avoid offending China in your personal statements, and that's understandable. But uh, now he is responsible for the statements of, you know, hundreds of millions of people on Twitter. And could China lean on him? I don't know. And here again, it will be useful for him to say, no, it's a company. We've outsourced it to this trust and safety team. You know, we've, right. we're committed to free speech. And, uh, like, I don't think he's going to, like, you know, ban discussion of Tibet tomorrow or whatever. Like, I think he has a genuine desire not to do that, right? I just, I don't know mm -hmm. what the pressures will be down the line. Yeah, there will be many. And and he already seems willing to wade in there, which is interesting. And no matter what he does with China, he's going to be suspect because of his economic interests. So what's the best case and worst case for the business here? Oh, I mean, the worst case is, is everyone quits and the service becomes unusable and Twitter dies in like three months. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think the odds of that are super high, but like the worst case here is, you know, zero. Um, and like when I say zero, like it gets worse because it's like you yeah, got all this zero. debt that you have to pay. And then like, right. does, does a bank foreclose on it? Does like Morgan Stanley end up owning Twitter and like they mm -hmm. don't want that. Yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of worst cases. Uh, what's the best case? He does product innovation that makes it fun to use and that people want. And he does enough economic innovation that, you know, he's like selling more ads and or charging people for using Twitter in a way that is relatively frictionless so that like power users are paying as much as they're willing to pay and ordinary users are getting it for free and they're like, oh, this is fun. And then like the next step of that is he does that in like three years. And then he goes back to public markets and he's like, buy my Twitter. And it's worth a, you know, a trillion dollars because it's the combination of like the business is good. And like, it's the Elon Musk, you know, fanboy meme stock effect. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for this show comes from Ramp. Are you overwhelmed with managing your business expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? Is your finance software just not cutting it? Or maybe you're just looking to cut all that wasteful spending. Ramp could be a total game changer for you and your business. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Plus, Ramp is easy to use. You can get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. Not only that, but Ramp can save you money. They estimated that businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. 
Just go to ramp.com slash Kara, ramp.com slash Kara, R-A-M-P.com slash Kara. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Um, even though this is Elon's deal, there's a lot of people involved, investors, 19 investors, aside from Musk. I want to go through a lightning round of some of those different parties to this deal and ask what what influence they have at this point. Morgan Stanley, which led the group of banks in providing $13 billion in loans for the deal. Role, influence? I think they, you know, I think they have his ear, like his banker at Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. Michael Grimes, is, is a, you know, sort of well-known banker and has, has clearly been like his kind of trusted advisor on this. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, will be giving Elon some financial advice about like mm-hmm. what the market wants and uh and that matters you know in terms of being the creditor i think that twitter is just going to pay the interest for a while like i don't like even if things go poorly and i think that morgan stanley in their role as creditor just want no part of like the day-to-day running of No, these we don't want Morgan Stanley running Twitter either. And they're not going to sell the debt off to other people who will be a little less kind to Elon, correct? That's like what's been said so far. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they won't. It means that like they said they wouldn't. this is not a good time to sell the debt. So like if right. the market changes, their minds might change. Um, I don't know. I, I thought about that because like a lot of people have talked about like, oh, this debt will end up in the hands of like Apollo and these mm-hmm. really aggressive, you know, distressed debt investors who will like put the screws to Elon. I can't imagine wanting that, right? So I don't know. I, I think the debt will be pretty quiet. I also think that like, I don't think Twitter's going to default on the debt in six months. I think they have a lot of cash and yeah. I think they'll find a way to kind of make the payments. You don't think some activist investor is dreaming and getting in a fight with Elon? Someone just went up against Facebook when he, they have no influence at Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg controls everything. What are they going to do? Make him feel bad? But like, I don't know. Like, look at like Mark Zuckerberg's personality. It's true. Musk's personality. Oh, I think there's an activist. I don't know. If, there's no lack of malignant narcissists on Wall Street. So we'll see. Um, Prince Al-Wahid bin Talal and the Kingdom Holding Company had a combined $1.89 billion in Twitter shares, which they didn't sell into this thing, making him the second largest shareholder after uh, uh Musk. He's been uh, initially critical of the deal. He was kind of testy, in fact. Role now influence? I think none of his equity investors have any influence at no. all. I think some of, like a couple of them are like Elon's friends and like VCs and like they might have some influence. But I mean, I just like, like I think contractually they have no, like they have no say over the company. Right. And I think uh, they are not in this because they want to run Twitter. They want to hang. Think they're in it because they trust Elon. It, like in Alley's case, like, like the interesting thing there is that he was critical of the deal because he thought Elon was underpaying for the shares. Now, right. I don't know if he still thinks that, but his rolling over his stock is a way to implement that view. If you think Twitter is worth $100 billion, you don't want to sell at a $40 billion valuation, so you keep your stock. That's that's his bet here. And you don't care. You're so rich, you don't care. Well, I mean, if you think it's worth that much, he's going to keep his stock. Why not roll the dice? That makes sense. That actually that actually makes sense. What about VCs? Sequoia Capital, $800 million. Mark Andreessen, $400 million, telling Elon initially he'd invest two hundred fifty. million. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, I think as, as equity investors, they have just no power whatsoever. I think this is Elon's company. I think as, like, fellow rich VCs, like, they can they can get him on the phone. You know, they can, like, text him. Okay, Binance, which committed $500 million. Their CEO, when asked this week if he'd stick to the deal, responded with a not-so-rousing, I think so. Yeah, they're in. And, like, other crypto exchanges, they're like, we're going to put Twitter on the blockchain, right? So, like, mm-hmm. Binance has definitely made some noises about how they yeah. will help Twitter go out, like, integrate with the blockchain. I have no idea what that means. I don't think, I don't think it means much. I don't either. I don't think it means anything. And, and, and the other thing is, like, 
we haven't talked about it really, but there's the super app idea where like mm-hmm. Twitter becomes like the payments channel for right. America, the way like, you know, WeChat kind of is in China. Right. And uh, I don't put a high probability on that. Neither do I. But if you put like any probability on that and you're a crypto exchange, like that's a good, that's a good yeah. business to attach yourself to. Sure. All right. Two more. Jack Dorsey. He set the deal in motion. Do you see him having a big influence? No, it's interesting that like there was talk like, like in Elon's filings, he talked about he was continuing to have conversations with Jack yeah. about investing. And we don't really actually know who the co-investors are, but it didn't seem like Jack was actually rolling his stock over. I don't know. I mean, like clearly they have like a friendly relationship and like they text, but like my impression is that Jack is uh, kind of checked out from Twitter and yeah. does not have uh, a lot to tell Elon about how to run it. All right. Last one. Cepheus, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. Is there any danger of anything here? There's been some reporting that like people in the Biden administration don't like that Elon Musk is sort of been acting like a Russian agent on Twitter. Uh, or when he's not being a Chinese agent, but go ahead. Yeah. And like more, he's like been more like he's like occasionally tossed off Chinese propaganda, but like he's been pretty committed to Russian propaganda and only for like the last like two weeks. It's not like a longstanding fondness for like aggressive yeah. Russian foreign policy. It's like two weeks ago. He's like, ah, Russia should really keep Crimea. I call him Madam Secretary in case you're interested. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I think that the odds of Cepheus blocking Elon Musk, who is a U.S. citizen from owning Twitter, zero. Zero. Um, I think there's some chance that some of his foreign investors, which include like Binance and Al-Walid and some others, would would be kicked out of the deal because Cepheus technically has the ability to kick out uh, minority foreign investors. But like, why? Like, what, what's the risk to, to foreign policy of, of like these minority investors owning Twitter? So I, I put, I don't think it's much. Yeah. All right. Let's move to ESG because some of the people around Elon that were egging on to buy Twitter were part of his anti-woke crowd, Joe Lonsdale, Larry Ellison, Joe Rogan. You've been studying this anti-woke, anti-ESG sales pitch as a new trend for those seeking easy cash. I'm going to read something from your piece, which I lo- I'm loving these anti-ESG pieces. Right now, if you go around saying, I am doing a financial business, but I will make a point of not considering environmental, social, or governance factors, or even I will consider ESG factors, but only to do the opposite of what those woke ESG funds do, people will fling money at you. <laughs> Tell me about this. Uh, I think that this like comes out of Republican electoral politics, where Republicans say like a way that we can appeal to voters is by saying that big, evil financial firms like BlackRock are stealing your retirement savings to promote their big city woke values, right? There's some like kernel of truth to that where like, you know, these big investors are run out of big coastal cities and like many of their managers tend to be more socially liberal than like the average, you know, Republican voter. Mm -hmm. And so they have views on climate change that are not necessarily like the political majority in America. And so these ESG funds take that, like implement that view and try to buy stocks that will do well in uh, response to climate change. And if you are a Republican, you know, candidate, you can make hay out of that because you're, you know, you're saying like traditional Republican things about like, you know, distrusting climate change, but you're also attacking big business, which like has a sort of natural populist appeal. 
But is it a good investment theory? Like, do they have any possibility of success? Contrarian thinking can be rewarding, but it also. I don't is, think that I don't think that this is primarily a it's financial. vanity investing. Then I yeah. think this is a theory of Republican politics. But like the way you implement it is you take money away from BlackRock. You're like, yeah. our state pension will never invest in BlackRock. We'll take it away, and then mm-hmm. there springs up a business to support that. But it's not primarily a like thought out financial. And and I'm being unfair. And there are people who take it more seriously and are like, we think ESG is, is, is wrong. Like, mm-hmm. like, like the, the financial analysis is incorrect mm-hmm. and we will do a different financial analysis. But there are also a lot of people who are like, these Republicans say, you know, treasurers are handing out all this money they took from BlackRock. I want to get some of that money. Right. So I think there is, uh, a sort of obvious, like opportunistic, uh, uh, form of anti-ESG investing where you say, I'm not woke. Give me the money. So is it the end of ESG? No, uh, I mean it's weird because like like the U.S. is 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 very weird in this, and there in there being a very strong coordinated backlash to ESG, mm-hmm. but in the rest of the world, like no, not no. at all. And so these really big global asset managers have 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 a difficult time where it's very important for them to prove their ESG bona fides to like certainly like European investors and also to a lot of American you know pension funds or whatever but also they have to be able to go to like the Texas pension fund and be like no 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 we don't do ESG at all right right so that we can invest in gas and oil so last thing ESG is one trend but you have written a 40,000 word cover story for Bloomberg Business Week about crypto can you talk about your take on crypto under you you're pretty much in the middle like I don't know it could be good it could be bad what what makes it a good time to talk about it now since we're in obvious crypto winter yeah I mean like we're in a crypto winter in the sense that crypto like lost a ton of you know two trillion dollars of market value in the last like you know during this year but it's also like there's a trillion left right like it's still a big you know asset class is maybe too too nice a word but it's it's still a big thing right it still attracts mm-hmm. a lot of investment and uh and people are still doing a lot of stuff and like building a lot of products in, in crypto i mean you know i as you say i'm in, i'm kind of in the middle like i'm skeptical of a lot of the claims that have been made for cryptos like current usefulness or for like a future where we're all constantly exchanging coins for everything we do. Um, but I also think that like crypto has built a pretty cool financial system and has had a lot of like interesting technical ideas. Uh, and so like, I'm sort of enthusiastic for like seeing what crypto is doing. I also think that it's just an interesting thing to think about because it's a real lens on Mm -hmm. what happens in finance, what, you know, like what social status means, all these questions that, you know, are sort of like big questions of, of life sure. are like crypto, like makes them really clear and weird, you know? Yes, and, so and it's, they're it's also fun testing old theories. I think yeah, that's one of yeah, the yeah. points you were making that was so valuable to me is that they're not necessarily, there's nothing new under the sun. And yet they're th- rethinking the things that are under them and making the same mistakes in many ways. Yeah. Even just making the same mistakes that traditional finance makes is, is instructive because you get to like, you get to see it in like a lab setting, you know, you get to see, like I, I said that like the crypto winter among other things, just recreated the 2008 financial crisis. Like just some mm-hmm. of the dumb stuff that that happened in 2008 where everyone's like, well, we can never let that happen again. Crypto found a way to do it again, which is, you know, instructive. Are the imbeciles and hucksters gone? Oh, no. But I think like, I think the, the, the you know, density of, of hucksters is lower because like a lot of them, you know, some of them are like literally on the lam. Yeah. And then others are, uh, you know, pretty chastened by being in bankruptcy. Right. And I think just in general, like, you're less likely to fool people 
now mm-hmm. into like doing like the dumbest possible thing because when everything was going up like you might as well do the thing that's going up the most right. and now people are you know it's like it's, it's not obviously easy money anymore so so you've crypto elon and anti-esg what is the biggest finance story you're looking at next gosh the, the next big story i don't know I'm, I'm interested in like you know i come from banking and a bunch mm-hmm. of the big banks are sort of doing big moves you know credit suisse is breaking itself apart like goldman sachs is kind of rethinking it's a mm-hmm. like a retail move so there's a lot of stuff that's happening in banks but mostly i've had no thoughts beyond elon and twitter and i'm going to you know like remove my brain from my head for the weekend so. well you're very funny um people don't realize you you've made finance funny you made finance funny and also witty actually elon has witty. done it too but yes he's done it he's given you good material but you know Not every writer takes that material and uses it properly. And it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. He was a great interview. He really is. He's really interesting. He's got a great voice for for podcasting, I think. I think he sounds very sultry. Well, sultry business news. Wow, Kara, that's your type? I just think he's very smart. He's smart and, and has a good voice for radio. So He also has a sense of humor. Yes, he's kind of very dry, but very funny. Very dry. Very funny guy. I thought the most interesting point for, for me or the frame that he put around it is how having a CEO who actually cares about Twitter, who isn't checked out of Twitter, who would pay a thousand bucks a month for Twitter, probably Elon would pay like 10,000 bucks for Twitter. I mean, some change for him that that would make him a different kind of leader who's invested. Yes. It actually is the most earnest picture I've heard painted of Elon in some way. Yeah, it was good. I thought the most important thing and something I've talked about is taking this thing public. Mm-hmm. If he cleans it up just a little bit, it could become a meme stock. There's a way out of this for Elon if he relies on his fans. And he does just a, yeah. a pretty good job cleaning up the, the balance sheet. Although he said not a meme stock, a meme lord with a potentially good stock that he could drive up via. It's a meme stock. It's still a meme <laughs> stock. You think it's It's not a good business. And it will. And I don't know how he can triple revenue, but good luck. What about when it's the X app, when it's everything, when you're using it to order your food and your lice medicine for your hair? And- I'm going to give all my personal information to Elon Musk and his friends. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sure. No. He's starting to insulate himself from these big decisions. Do you think that he's going to be able to insulate? Has he, you know him. Is he going to be able to keep himself from big decisions? I don't know. I don't know. I just don't trust this group of people with my data. I don't, I'm not on Facebook. It's no insult. I just don't think they're, they have as much respect for my data as other people. So I'll go with people who have respect. Um, if, they, if there starts to be data problems, I'll see you later. But if Trump comes back, you're not going to leave because of that. He was there before. I think it's stupid and divisive and he broke their rules but it's his you know it's his ball he can do whatever he wants and you think that he's going to be proactive making that decision or you think he's really going to be delegating it to some content moderation board no he's not he's going to make it himself all right well we'll see what happens as we stay tuned for i'm sure hourly updates of of elon musk owning twitter a new world a new world and hopefully for the recovery of paul pelosi as well indeed all right, Kara, time for unsolicited advice. Who would you like to give it to today? Do you want to give some to the new Twitter leadership? You know, interestingly, Elon asked me for some ideas. And and since then, we've had a little bit of a kerfuffle. But I would say a couple of things that he has to really um, lean into the idea of an enjoyable product experience. People are making all kinds of calculations of why they're there. And if they're not enjoying it like they do on TikTok, for example, um, I think people won't use it. And if the product is full of racists and anti-Semites and anti-gay people, I don't want to be there. 
and I won't be there. And the, the most important thing is how do you attract new users, right? How do you get new people? I was talking to my son, Louis, and he liked Elon. Uh, his opinion of him has changed really through this whole debacle, I think. And I think one of the most important things is how are you going to get them to come on this super app or whatever the heck you do or make payments? Young people, how to get young people onto this new Twitter. Yeah, I asked them both. Nothing, Mom. There's nothing that would make us get on there. Nothing. And I said, not a truck of weed? And they laughed. I was making a joke. But um, no, nothing. There was nothing they could think of, trust me. And they think it's. They think all this stuff is a time suck. Well, yeah. And the question is, is Twitter relevant? I mean, it's used by a bunch of older people who are influential in media. Not everybody has Twitter, but let me just say that's exactly what they said to me. They're like, it's a bunch of old ladies like yourself yelling at old men like yourself. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. You are both like note, an old man and an old lady. That's a good way to end the episode. They have no interest, <laughs> Elon. So figure out something they'd have interest in, but it's not going to work anyway. So we'll see. All right, read us out, Kara. Today's show was produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Christian Castro-Rosell, and Rafaela Seward. This episode was engineered by Fernando Arruda. Our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get a treat. If not, here's the trick. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher, and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. We'll be back on Thursday with more. <laughs>